Well, good morning. We are in chapter 5 in the book of Nehemiah today in our Together series. If you're new to Mission View Church, my name is Evan Miller. I'm one of the deacons here at Mission View, and uh, I'm part of the preaching team. Pastor Steve asked me um, several months ago to preach on this passage, and so this chapter and these verses, they've been kind of marinating, kind of uh, heavy on my heart and in my mind. So the series that we're going through, we are, we are talking the next several weeks, uh, focusing on the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an Old Testament book, and the theme of the book is God's people, the Israelites, they're building a city within a city. They're rebuilding the wall that surrounds them. And they are doing this for their protection against the people outside their community that want to do harm to them. And they are building the wall so they can be unified together in a community of faith and love. Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall from ruins. This isn't an easy task. It seems impossible. But God has called Nehemiah to build this wall, and God's people follow him in obedience. So, so far, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah has faced much opposition as he set out to rebuild the wall to protect Jerusalem. In chapter 4, last week, he faced outside challengers who criticized Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild the wall. The outsiders and the enemies of God... They, they taunted and they laughed at the Jews, saying that their wall would be so weak that if a fox were to go and climb on top of it and stand, the wall would crumble. Other outsiders, other enemies of God made fun of the Jews, saying they weren't strong enough, you're too weak, you can't finish the work of the wall. And then a third group last week that we saw posed a violent threat to the Jews. They said, you continue to build this wall and we will kill you to permanently end the work of the wall. Pastor Alistair Begg says it like this, anytime that God's people does God's work in God's way, they will face opposition from the evil one. And it almost becomes a litmus test to determine the validity of the scope of work that you are performing in the kingdom of God and in your own life. Pastor Steve talked about this very clearly and passionately last week. He spoke on this, that if you are living for Jesus and if you're sharing your faith, you will face strong opposition of some kind or form. In the case of Nehemiah chapter 5, the opposition continued to come. At this point, you'd think there'd be no issue. The outsiders that were taunting that were jeering, that were making physical threats to the Jews. The outsiders were stopped because of Nehemiah's boldness and because of the people's actions. And they took action to protect God's work. So you would think at this point it would be a coast to the finish line. You would think at this point that everything was set up for success. But no, opposition continued. But this time, it came from an unlikely source. It came from within. Nehemiah chapter 5 begins with an outcry from the people. A few things to notice as we look here. The Jews here were working on the wall. It's nearing completion. 
And you have to remember here, the Jewish people are fully devoted to rebuilding the wall, and they see this as being God's work. They don't see this just as being Nehemiah's crazy construction project. And so the Jews, they commit to rebuilding the wall, and so they walk away temporarily from some of the other jobs they would have performed, and they shift their focus to the wall. So since their focus is on the wall, they are not earning their typical wages. They are not fully farming or plowing the fields or harvesting the crops. So sometimes they're going to fall in financial trouble. And then what we see here is that they face opposition from their fellow Jews. Normally in a situation where somebody is wronged, one of the things I want you to notice in this passage, normally in a situation where somebody is wronged in this culture or society, it's the men that step up and they speak up and they act. But here the outcry is so daunting that it says the wives joined in with the husbands. Now it would take a lot of desperation for the men and their wives to approach Nehemiah to complain. They would have to be in some pretty dark times. And here you see exactly that. So Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1, our first point is open your ears to hear the outcry. And in this, in this verse one that we're about to read, this crowd has three types of people who are being oppressed. The first type of person is the disadvantaged. Verse one says this. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So the first group of people here, they're not landowners. The first group of people here, are they're daily wage workers. And because they don't have land of their own, they need to be compensated somehow so they can buy grain and feed their families. They don't have money for grain because during the day, their focus is on the wall. They're focused on rebuilding the wall. They didn't have an income coming in, so they have a hard time affording food. So we call this group of people the disadvantaged. They don't have a savings account to work from. They don't own land, so they don't have assets to lean on. These are the folks making minimum wage and living paycheck to paycheck. We have a second group of people in this passage. Verse 3, there were those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So the second group of people, they're a little better off. The second group of people are still in tough shape. The second group of people, we're going to call them the debt-ridden. They are working to rebuild the wall, but they're unnecessarily having to go into debt so they can buy food and feed their families. And they're having to mortgage their fields. They're having to mortgage their land. That's almost, that's unimaginable to us to think that we would have to mortgage our, our, our land, our houses to feed our family. It's hard to believe they're doing that to free up money just so they can survive. And we have a third group of people here in this passage. The third group of people we're going to call the desperate. And these were the type of people, they owned land. But these type of people are being crushed by a mountain of debt. They've borrowed money and they are so deep into debt that they can't pay back their loans. They've done whatever it takes to get some extra money. They've had yard sales at their house. They've posted things on Craigslist to get people to buy them. And they're out of things 
These are the type of people, they've maxed out their credit cards. They can't make a minimum payment. They can't obtain more credit. They can't afford to pay their taxes. And they're facing foreclosure. So verse 4 talks a little bit about them. Still, there were others saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet they have subjected our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And you can almost hear their voices tremble as they cry out to Nehemiah, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless. We have the appearance of having wealth. We have land. But those lands and fields and vineyards, they belong to others now. We've run out of money. We have no other option. Everything is gone. Everything that has represented financial security and freedom to us has been taken away. My family can't afford to buy bread. So these people are so down and out and desperate that in order for them to live, their sons and daughters are forced into slavery. And you can see how all three examples of these people here, the disadvantaged, the debt-ridden, and the desperate, they're all lacking hope, and they're stuck in this difficult position. And the thing to remember is that these these, these folks, they are not being oppressed by payday loan people. They are not being oppressed by loan sharks. But they are being oppressed by their fellow Jews. They are being oppressed by their brothers and sisters in the faith. And they're taking advantage of the brothers and sisters that are in need. This would be like if you're down and out, you're strapped for cash, and you can't feed your kids. You've lost your job, you can't pay your bills, and you're out on the street looking for work, and you run into another believer from this church, and the believer knows your situation. They see your starving family week in and week out, day in and day out, and the rich believer offers you a couple grand so that you can get back up on your feet, but it's on one condition. But it's on one condition. First of all, he wants the deed to your house. You're stuck, you don't have any other options, so you hand it over. And you think, you know what, maybe it's just going to be a short term. Maybe I'll get back on my feet. Maybe I'll be able to survive. But the money goes. It goes to feeding your family, to clothing them. And then pretty soon you're in the same position that you were before. But this time you have nothing left. And hope has, has quickly run out. And that believer owns your house. And so you, you lay awake at night. You lay awake in your bed. And your baby cries herself to sleep because she's hungry. And your wife is weak and frail. The kids have holes in their shoes. You lay awake at night wondering how you'll survive another day. How your family will have the strength to stand. And you wish that you had something else to give. The problem here is you have no collateral left. Everything that your family has worked for, everything that has been passed down from generations prior is gone. Well, except for your children. After all, they can, they can work for the rich men as slaves. I mean, right? It's the only option for them, for money, to have money and clothing. At least they'll be fed, right? 
Now, we can't even begin to imagine such a desperate situation nowadays where we can't pay our bills and we have to offer up our children in such a way. But know that outside of America, this type of tragic and unimaginable act has become a reality for many parents and families, just like Carl just shared. It's always poverty that leads to this kind of desperation. It's always poverty that pushes a parent in this situation to give up their child because there's nowhere else to turn and all their options have run dry. I mean, are you kidding me? How can this actually be something that we're reading about here in the Bible that took place in human history, let alone the kingdom of God? How does that happen? And so Nehemiah hears this. Nehemiah hears the outcry of his people. And the next thing that he does is he opens his heart. That's our second point here. We'll see Nehemiah's response. The second point is open your heart. And we open our heart to those who are being oppressed. Verse 6 begins with Nehemiah's response. Look at it here, verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Nehemiah's heart was opened before the Lord. So open your heart. What was previously closed off to Nehemiah had been made known, and it cut Nehemiah to the heart, and he became angry. And this section tells us the events of oppression are new to Nehemiah's knowledge. He's just learning about these. Nehemiah is governor of the Jewish people of this time, and this oppression is happening on his watch, and he doesn't even know about it up until now. And you may wonder, how, how could Nehemiah, how could, you not, how could you not know about this? This likely has been going on for a long time. Now, we don't know the answer for sure. We can't ask him. We do know that as if, if you were a governor of a land, you would have a lot of things going on. I mean, the, the guy isn't sitting around twiddling his thumbs. We saw last week in chapter four, he's dealing with three different kinds of, of oppressors, people that are taunting and mocking. So his efforts are focused on that. So typically in, in a situation like this, if you were governor of a land, you would rely on your officials and your nobles to tell you what's going on in the pockets of the community that you may not know about. They would uncover the things that you may not be seeing. But in this particular case, the ones who are supposed to be speaking up and sharing with Nehemiah what's going on are the ones that are doing the oppression. The nobles and officials were set on profiting off of the, on the backs of their people instead of providing for their people. They put profit over people. And so Nehemiah is angry here. He is righteously angry. And his reaction to what he has heard is the example of what righteous anger looks like. Now, if we're honest, I mean, there's stuff that makes us angry on a daily basis. So each and every one of us get mad on a daily basis. But it doesn't mean that our anger is righteous. Unrighteous anger is, is, is different from righteous anger. And unrighteous anger, if we're honest, is probably the type of anger that we experience the most. If we're honest, are you willing to be honest about that this morning? I mean, I, 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 I could give you about 739 examples in my life on a daily basis of things that make me angry. 
and it's not the righteous kind. The type of anger I typically have is unrighteous. When I'm standing in a long line at the grocery store, I get angry, and it's not the righteous kind. All I can think about is, why is the cashier so slow? How does somebody move that slow? It's like she's stuck in slow motion. And, and, and I look over and I think, why can't the manager open more registers here? There's 29 registers in this store. Only two of them are open. Somehow, when they constructed this building and they were putting the checkout lines in, somebody said, okay, boss, how many checkout lines do you think we should put here? And somebody answered, 29. Then on a daily basis, they make the active decision to only open up two of those registers. doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it. It's not a righteous anger. That's unrighteous anger. When I'm ordering food at Chipotle, sometimes I get angry. I have to pray before I go in. And it's the type of anger that I have is not the righteous kind. And when I walk up to the glass where you stand and the Chipotle worker takes your order, right? And then you ask for chicken. And they take that, that scoop and they sometimes scoop me out what I would call a baby scoop of chicken. Now, I'm a full-grown man. If I was, wanted a baby scoop of chicken, I would have ordered a kid's meal. I mean, this guy is scooping this thing out. It's almost like he's counting the number of pieces of chicken that is in there. He is acting like it's coming out of his paycheck. <sighs> it's not the righteous kind of anger. When I'm driving on Interstate 77, I have a problem I get angry at people who drive slower than me. The other side of the problem is I get angry at people who drive faster than me. I can't stand either of them. In order for us to get along, you have to drive the same speed limit or somewhere close to that. And if you drive slower than me, I have to speed up and I have to pass you. And then when I'm passing you, I have to turn my head to see if you look as silly as you drive. <laughs> this is not righteous anger. These are all examples of unrighteous anger. And here's the difference. Unrighteous anger is followed by impulsiveness and sin. However, righteous anger is always followed by a rational response. Righteous anger is always followed by a rational response. Nehemiah demonstrates it perfectly. Notice how Nehemiah responds. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel, verse 7, with myself and brought the charges against the nobles and the officials. You know, as humans, there's something that we love to see when somebody has been wrong. We love seeing that swift justice, that action, that Walker, Texas Ranger, that Jack Bauer action where they just, they jump in and they finish it. They close the job and they punish the evildoers. We love to see that. And I think sometimes when we read passages like this, there's, there's, there, there's a small statement that's sandwiched in between the time where Nehemiah heard the outcry and before he took action. Don't miss this. Let me read it again. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard the outcry of these words. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself 
So, is he, so he's angry, but he doesn't react right away. He doesn't respond to the officials. He doesn't go and wring their necks. He ponders the charges in his mind first. Nehemiah's response was rational. In verse 7, he says, I pondered in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. So he paused, he sat with himself and God to assess the situation before he acted. Nehemiah's example of how to deal righteously with anger is an important one because there are issues that flood our world and our minds that we can get righteously angry about. But if we're not careful, we can mix righteous anger with a sinful religious pride and we can flippantly fly off the handle in front of an unbelieving society by posting something that we'll later regret on social media or by having an emotional outburst. It is the Spirit of God that has opened our hearts that allows us to see and sense righteous anger. But too often we can let our flesh react quickly and swiftly. Instead, when we are righteously angry about something, we need to pause and stop and reflect. Then ask God, situate, ask God how, how, how we can have his wisdom to address the situation. I mean, this is why in Ephesians verse, chapter 4, verse 26, the apostle Paul says, be angry and sin not. This is a principle, young people, for you and your schools, amongst your friends and your sports teams and in your clubs, don't let your life be filled with drama and emotional outbursts. So much time and energy is wasted in petty situations. And the first reaction that we have is not to pause and to take it before the Lord. The first reaction that we have oftentimes when we're angry is to text or, or call or, 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 or tell our closest friends how we've been wronged and how things have been so terrible for us. People in the workplace, this principle for you here is the next time when somebody in your workplace is driving you nuts. Pause and reflect and then act. Don't just pause and reflect, pause, reflect, and then act. Don't let it fester. We have a famous phrase in our workplace. We say, find what bugs you and fix it. So Nehemiah responds righteously. And once he has finished thinking, he rounds up the rich noble leaders. And you have to remember who these nobles are. These are the higher up in society, right? These are the well-to-do. These folks have likely been wealthy for generations, and everybody wants to be them. Everybody dreams of being them because of the security that their wealth has given them. Their names and their reputations are recognizable and rememberable. Just like today, our celebrities, our politicians, and the wealthy of our world, attain, uh, they attend the same parties and the same gatherings. They give each other trophies. They run in the same circles. And you never hear Hollywood celebrities calling out or confronting each other on moral issues. There's no objectivity. They scratch each other's backs. They defend each other's lifestyles and they inflate each other's egos. They consider what is evil to be good and what is good to be evil. The same is true here. The wealthy of Nehemiah's day is likely spoke to one another with a tone of flattery. And it's highly unlikely that these folks were the ones that were, they were hardly ever questioned or challenged. But Nehemiah is about to, he's about to shake them up. 
I heard one pastor one time refer to this section of scripture where Nehemiah is confronting these, these rich nobles who are corrupt. I've heard somebody refer to this one time as being a sanctified showdown. It's about to happen. Nehemiah begins his response to the nobles saying, you are charging your own people interest, exclamation mark. You are ripping off your brothers and sisters. You are selling your own people. This is wrong. Now, it's not the interest that's the problem here. It's totally okay to charge interest to someone when loaning money. And the Jews, they were allowed to do this back then too. However, they were not permitted to charge interest to their fellow Jew. This was forbidden in the scriptures. And the old covenant forbid Jews from charging interest to their brothers and sisters, especially in tough economic times. And the nobles knew this because it was a part of the scriptures that they would read. It was part of the scriptures they grew up on. Leviticus 25, starting at verse 35, you don't have to turn there because I'll read it, says this, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as if though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not live him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. So the nobles, they had this scripture. They knew it was wrong. And this is why after Nehemiah confronts them at the end of verse 8, he says to the nobles, the end of verse 8 says this, they were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah continues and says, the very thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? You know, it's like, it's like Nehemiah is saying to them, there's no reason for us to continue building this wall if what's happening on the inside is no different than what goes on in the outside world. What difference will it make if we act like the rest of the world? Nehemiah is telling them, that they are not walking in the fear of the Lord. The Jewish nobles were living their lives with no regard for God. They didn't allow the fear of the Lord to control their thoughts and their actions. They lived as if God was not present in their lives. And that caused them to do things their own way and to disregard their brothers and sisters in need. A.W. Tozer says it like this, when men no longer fear God, they transgress his laws without hesitation. The fear of consequences is no deterrent when the fear of God is gone. So when you walk in the fear of the Lord, you live purposefully, knowing that God has put you here for a reason. You realize that your actions, positive or negative, affect others, and you do your best to live by his word and to glorify God and to please God. So Nehemiah tells the officials and the nobles to stop their sin and to restore what they've done. Now, the leaders responded here in verse 12. 
If you look at verse 12, he says, the, the, the nobles responded by saying, then they said, we will restore these and require them no, nothing more from them. We will do as you say. Wow, imagine, you know, if it would be that easy with dealing with people in, in power who are corrupt nowadays. Excuse me, Senator. Pardon me, Congresswoman. Your actions are corrupt. Oh, yes, you're right. I, I'm sorry. I will restore all the people that I've cheated and, 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 and do, everything, do, do right to make for what was wrong. Might not happen for us, but here it happens for Nehemiah. And we're happy about that. But Nehemiah also knows that talk is cheap. And so he summons the priests. He gets all the priests together to be present. And he asks those nobles to take an oath. And he, he asks them to do it in front of all the priests so that they will promise to do what they say they will do. So the nobles take an oath and then Nehemiah warns them sternly. Remember back then they wore, they wore uh, tunics and long flowing robes. So what Nehemiah does is he takes his garment and he shakes out the dust from it. And he says, so that any may who do not keep his promise, they would be shaken out and emptied. And what he's saying here, this, see, this is a form of church discipline that Nehemiah is showing to the nobles. So first he says, I'm going to, to, I'm, I'm going to um, tell you what you need to do. Second, I'm going to gather the priests. And third, I'm going to kick you out of the faith community and treat you like an outsider if you don't uphold what you've promised to do. There's no Mickey Mouse in around here. Nehemiah's not playing games. I love the response of the nobles. And this is, this is great. The Bible writes, verse 13, and all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. The response seems small. The words seem insignificant. But how many times do we come to church and we're stirred? How many times have we sat in these seats and we say, wow, God convicted me? And we say, I'm going to change. I feel bad. I feel miserable. Lord, this week is going to be different. God, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to live more for you. But then the last song plays. And we go eat a donut in the commons, we shake a few hands, and we go home, and we are the same. The greatest tragedy is when people come in contact with a living God, and they hear his words and study his scriptures, but remain unchanged. Let that not be the case here with us this morning. See, true repentance is not marked by how crummy we feel. We've all felt bad one point or another about our actions. True repentance is an inward change that leads to action. And in the case of these nobles, as corrupt and as evil they, as they were, you can see that their repentance was true because they didn't just, it, didn't, it didn't just stop with them feeling bad about what they had done. They didn't just make a promise and say, I'm going to stop ripping people off and move on with my life. No, true repentance doesn't just stop the sinful actions. True repentance reverses and restores the sin that has been committed. Remember when Jesus confronted Zacchaeus in the New Testament and Zacchaeus repents and says, whatever I've stolen, I will pay back fourfold. These nobles, they did as they promised. They repented of the sin of oppression that was in their hearts. 
And they restored the fields of the people. They restored the vineyards to the people. They restored the olive orchards. They restored their houses. They restored their daughters and their sons. And they reversed the interest. And they relieved the people of their debt. Because their hearts had been opened. So today, let our hearts be open to the oppression that occurs in our midst. And next... Point three, let us be generous to others by opening our wallets to those in need. So this morning, we open our ears, we open our hearts, and we open our wallets. And Nehemiah shows us how to do it. Verse 14, if you'll follow along with me. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid a heavy burden on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. So as governor, Nehemiah had a, an immense amount of privilege for his position of power. He talks in verse 15 how the former governors made it hard on the people and took from the people the governor's daily ration. So Nehemiah, he had a right to something that he did not take advantage of so that he could provide for other people. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus had a right to heaven. Jesus had a right to a throne. And Jesus had a right to be worshiped fully. And he gave that up so he could die for our sins and to provide for us forgiveness and so that we could be generous with others. So that's where we need to give up our rights so that we can have care for others who are in need. And we can do this by being generous. D.L. Moody says it like this, a holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They only shine. I mean, it comes down to this. Each one of us have been blessed with gifts from God. There's three things that are true for everyone in this room, regardless of your age or your background. God has given you time, talent, and treasure. He has given you time to spend on this earth. He has given us talent in the way that we think and then we act and express ourselves. He has given us, um, he, he has given us treasure or money to provide for things that, that we need. So the way you spend your time, talent, and treasure will say a lot about you. And when we give up our rights like Nehemiah did, we can be generous to others by helping their needs. In the case of this passage, the rich nobles, they were not willing to give up their rights. And not only that, they openly sinned and oppressed their brothers and sisters in the faith and allowed them to walk into slavery. But instead, Nehemiah was joyfully generous and he gave up his rights so that his people can live and flourish. Nehemiah is generous with his time, talent, and treasure. For his time, he devotes 12 years to his time of of being governor for the people. He devotes his talent and his God-given abilities to leading the people. And in verse 17, we can see him using his, his treasure or his money for good. He says in verse 17, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from the other nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. 
Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy for the people. So look at this, Nehemiah rules for 12 years. There were 150 men from the community that he would, that he would every day feed. And he wasn't treating them to the dollar menu at McDonald's, although if he did, that would be generous too. Listen to this, at his own expense, he would get one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance, and not the kind of wine that comes from a box either, the best kind of wine every day. And I'm no mathematician, but this has got to cost a pretty penny. This was some kind of feast. Nehemiah personally funded all of this on his own. He didn't charge this to the Jewish people. And so Nehemiah ends this chapter in prayer saying, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And some people look at this and they say, well, that's, you know, an arrogant prayer. And this isn't so. Nehemiah cares more about what God thinks of him instead of what man thinks of him. This is a demonstration of the way that Nehemiah fears God. He would rather please God than please man. So it shows at the end of the day that he is more concerned with how he stands before God than anyone else. He has done good things as God has equipped him to do so. And my challenge for you today, in light of these truths, on the car ride home or during lunch, talk about a practical way that you and your family can show generosity like Nehemiah shows and like how Jesus perfectly demonstrated Start small. Start small. Maybe for you it means that you start by tithing or giving to the church. Now, nobody asked me to say this, but did you know that when you give to Mission View, at least 12% of what you give goes towards missionaries and mission ministries like Remember New and the Refuge of Hope. So not only are you helping support the work of the local body here, but you're allowing brothers and sisters in Christ to reach around the globe for Jesus. So start small. Talk to people around you in the congregation. Learn names. Say hi. Share struggles. Celebrate accomplishments. Join a community group. It doesn't have to be huge. You have to be willing to lend your resources and freely give. We have to remind ourselves not to be so tight. Give with no strings attached. Be ready to pour into people even when it's hard. Remember, God gave us so much more than we can even, even give to anyone else. God gave us, God gave humanity his most precious and prized possession, his one and only son. And what did we do to him? We murdered him on the cross. Therefore, I should be able to open up my wallet and freely give without a grudge or a complaint. So God gives us time, talent, and treasure so that we may use it to glorify him and so that others may come to know him, not so we can turn our homes into museums. So talk about it at lunch today. Evaluate where you stand as an individual and as a family. Am I being generous with what God has given me? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is we need to change something as a family. But if not, start small. Nehemiah's generosity was a foreshadow of what Jesus would be like. See, Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Nehemiah's generosity and his circumstances closely relate to Jesus's, but Jesus was perfect. This and all other, new to old, this and all other the Old Testament passages, see, they, they point to Jesus. 
The Old Testament isn't like Aesop fables where there's separate stories and there's only principles that relate just to that book. Instead, there is a thread that's woven all throughout Scripture that spans over thousands of years by authors of all walks of life who are inspired by God, and all the writings of Scripture testify to Jesus. Consider this. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He sat in the exalted position at the right hand of the king. He left comfort to go to a place of chaos and ruins. Who does that sound like? Jesus sat in an exalted position also at the right hand of the king. Jesus was willing to give up his position at the right hand of the father to come down to earth. He left comfort, he left heaven to go to a place of chaos and ruins to rebuild our walls of salvation and to free us from the stronghold that the enemy had on us. Nehemiah set the oppressed free and restored those who were being oppressed. Jesus sets the oppressed free and restores them into the kingdom of God as sons and daughters of the king. Nehemiah called his people to repent of their sin in order to be restored and walk in godliness. Jesus commands his people to repent of their sin so they may be restored and follow after him. Nehemiah set a great example of following the rules that he decreed and he cared greatly for his people. Jesus sets the ultimate example by becoming man and completely living without sin, showing everyone how to live and follow God. Nehemiah set a generous example by serving a large feast for many people at his own expense. But Jesus establishes, when he establishes the new heaven and the new earth, Jesus is going to throw the greatest feast and the biggest party with choice meats and choice wines, and you get to be a part of it if you follow him. Nehemiah generously gave and cared for his people, but Jesus gave all of himself. Jesus is the most generous giver, the most perfect provider. He gave up his life so that our broken relationship with God could be restored by the power of the cross. And because of Jesus, we have been made new. And because of Jesus, we have been freed from sin's oppressive grip on our lives. Because of Jesus, he has freed us from being a slave to sin, and instead we are slaves to righteousness, and he is our master. Our lives are in his hands and we trust in him because he is our king. So this morning, Jesus stands in front of you, ready and able to save you from the slavery that sin binds you in. Will you open your ears and listen to his call? So this morning, Jesus became the perfect sacrifice on your behalf so that we may have our sin removed and live in freedom. Will you open your heart and follow him? Jesus generously gave up everything so he could draw near to us. Will you give up your comfort and be generous so that others can know him? Father God, we thank you so much for the example of Nehemiah. And we thank you that Nehemiah is painting a picture of Jesus, that he is, he is foreshadowing what is to come in the life of Jesus, that Jesus will be the perfect and most generous giver, Lord. And that through him, we're able to have life and life everlasting. And that we're able to enjoy life because of the sacrifice that he made, because we can get to know you and enter in a relationship with you. Father, I would pray this morning that we would use the gifts that you give us to bless others and to free others from oppression or to help others in difficult times, Lord. 
And I would pray that if there was anybody that was, that was struggling with a difficult situation among us, that they would feel comfortable enough to, to come to a fellow brother and sister in need and that we would be able to serve and to, and to graciously provide the same way that you've loved us. Father, thank you for sending Jesus on our behalf so that we could have freedom in you. And in Jesus' name, amen.